A couple things to bring to your attention, uh, one of which the announcement of the Alpha Bible Course. Uh, For those who are wondering, we do have child care for that this evening, Um, and uh, this will be a kind of an intro to it tonight, and then from that point on, uh, we will be uh, asking for a charge, a family, $5 per family, uh, for the child care um, uh, to help us with that. But uh, it is something I would recommend. as you can see a good description of what the Apple Bible course is on your front of your bulletin. Uh, so if you don't know much about Christian teaching, is it a great way to introduce it uh, to you? As well as if you know folks who, um, well, they don't know anything about the gospel. Uh, they're not church. They had not had that background. And you're thinking, I, I want to do something where I can introduce it to them. I would encourage you to come to this class, take part in it. And what we hope to do is in the semesters to come... Uh, present this in homes. Uh, it could be that your house may be an option where you can present this to some of those folks you know. Uh, and so we want to be able to do that. So that will begin this evening. I encourage you to come out and uh, to learn what this is about. Uh, Ray Davis will be helping us in leading for that. Um, the second thing uh, that we want you to be thinking about and praying about um, is as you came in or as you go out, you'll be given a, a piece of paper uh, for our members concerning opportunity to purchase land adjacent to Green Pines Baptist Church, the, the property here. Um, let me just give you a little bit of um, background on this. Um, I think about a passage in, in Scripture where it says, uh, if you delight in the Lord, God will give you the desires of your heart when you commit your way to Him. And uh, one of the things that occurred this past summer, around June and July, is uh, we, uh, Mike and I started thinking and praying about the land around us, that it might be a good thing for us to have some of the properties uh, next to us if uh, uh, we ever hope to do anything more than what we are doing. Uh, the land around us uh, could be a valuable asset, not just to us in the immediate future, but even 10, 15, 20 years down the road. And so with that thought in mind, I think it was prompted by a house that was for sale uh, two lots from us, and we started thinking, wow, if that's for sale... What if we ever want to buy a land that uh, would be beneficial to us? How are we going to be able to do this? And and started going down this road, and we started talking about with the deacons and trustees and uh, started thinking about this. And, uh, in fact, we started pursuing uh, surveying some of the adjacent land to us, uh, some of the neighborhoods. And, uh, in fact, pursued uh, talking to one, uh, one uh, individual about this. And it just wasn't um, an agreement there for us to pursue this. Um, about this same time, toward the end of the summer, uh, I get a, a call from a lady by the name of Sue Floyd. Uh, she uh, first starts talking to me about uh, me as a, as a child, uh, which, you know, is always interesting when someone calls you, you don't know them, and they talk to you about being a child. Uh, she was a member of a church I grew up in uh, until I was three, and she, she remembered this, and my father. But she, uh, her sister owns land um, that is right next to us on Diane Street and, and Hodge Street. Um, if we look to this direction, our immediate, uh, my immediate right, your immediate left on the road front, and the Lord had put on this lady's heart that uh, she wanted to offer us land um, to sell. She had no idea what we were already been thinking and, and praying about, and um, it's with this thought of mind that we've uh, talked about this with the deacons and the trustees. Uh, they have talked with her. She's wanting to sell it to us at a property value 
uh, tax value, um, not at what she would sell at market, uh, though she's had three offers uh, for this land. Um, this land is not zoned under re- residential covenant like most of that street is. Um, all kinds of things that we can share with you that just let us know that perhaps the Lord is in this and the final confirmation is how he moves in your heart uh, in this. And so uh, you're going to get some information about this concerning um, some Q&A times that we want to talk about this. And uh, we're proposing that, uh, that there would be a love offering that would be given toward this. Um, and uh, you'll get that information as if you didn't get it on your way in, you'll get it on your way out. So I just want to let you know what that's about, okay? Um, so now that our mind's on that, uh, let's switch our minds if we can. Um, I want to take you to the book of Galatians. Uh, if you'll turn in your Bibles to Galatians chapter 1, um, we're going to start a new series, sermon series, following this book that will take us in the months to come. Um, the Lord doesn't come back, or any other major uh, disruptions occur, um, we'll probably be finished by August, <laughs> um, really. Um, so this is six chapters, but it's, it's, a, it's an important book. Um, let me share a little bit about why I, I chose the book of Galatians. Um, Galatians is uh, the first time I really have preached on a letter from Paul here. Um, We've done Ecclesiastes, we've done uh, Matthew, we've done Genesis, Uh, just finished up with Hebrews, with some other topics thrown in, but um, never actually done one from from Paul. And it's very important that we learn who Paul is and what he's teaching. Uh, Galatians presents the unique aspects of, of what Paul is teaching the authority that Paul has as why he's included in the canon um, and our understanding of the gospel today. Um, Galatians, uh, if anything, emphasizes grace. The grace of God in saving us. One of the things I've been hitting on in Matthew and in Hebrews especially is that believers don't just make a mere profession of faith. And one of the things I've been, been bringing out is that a believer will walk with Christ, will have not just how they begin, but how they end a characteristics of obedience, of walking away from this world and walking toward God, that their heart is changed, all right? And, and so even to the point where I'm teaching and saying that if this is not how you're characterized, then you really need to question whether you've been saved. Now, with that thought of mind and knowing what you've been hearing, what I've been teaching, Galatians brings us to the point of, okay, that's great, but you need to know that you're saved by nothing but grace of God. Nothing but the grace of God saves you. And so it's not by adhering to these codes that you have any assurance of your salvation as far as uh, to know, okay, this is, uh, if I do these things, then I'll be saved. No, it goes back to the grace of God as the starting point and as the continuing point so that when I do obey, it flows from nothing but the grace of God. And so it's to, to kind of give a, a balance and what you've been hearing, what I've been teaching, and what the Bible in its entirety teaches us concerning our salvation. Now, Paul, in writing the book of Galatians, he, he kind of, it's one of the first books he ever wrote. Um, wrote early on, many people think around 45, maybe as late as 50 uh, AD. 
this is after his first missionary journey. If you're following in the, the storyline of Paul, uh, and he visits some of the places like Lystria and Der- Derbia and Iconium and some of these places that fit probably within what we know as Galatia. Okay, And so after he does his first missionary journey, some things happen uh, that perhaps corrupts what they understand in the gospel. And so he quickly writes this letter uh, as a way to uh, bring correction to them. Now, one of the things that's interesting about uh, Galatians is that if you read the other letters that Paul writes, they usually start off with some encouraging word, some compliment, if you will. Um, you see this in, in Corinth. Uh, calling them uh, saints when there's a lot of problems going on in, in the church of Corinth. Uh, you, you see this in Thessalonica. You see it in Philippi. Um, you see it in Romans, even a church he had not yet met. Uh, but he, he talks about how their faith is heard of all around the, the area. Um, he has all these uh, Colossians. He gives these encouragements and compliments. But you don't see it in Galatians. I mean, the formula, as, as we read verses 1 through 5, he kind of follows the same formula, grace and peace to you. And then verse 6, where normally there's some kind of prayer of thanksgivings like he does in these letters. Verse 6, I'm astonished that you're so quickly deserting him. It's just like, bam, uh, let me give it to you straight. I'm not giving you much encouragement. There's sarcasm in this book. Um, there's... Big challenges uh, in this book. Some people think, well, this kind of fits you, Jared. You know, um, Well, hopefully not all that, but sometimes a place for sarcasm. Every once in a while, Paul finds a place for it. Um, when, it when it concerns the gospel, he attacks wholeheartedly uh, in this letter. So what's, we're going to look at verses 1 through 5. And as we look at this, there's going to be the themes of the book. Two main themes of the book that even get introduced right in the greeting. This is not just some quickly quick thing that we, we go over. He actually gives us the outline, if you will, of the book. He gives us what he's going to be talking about in the first five verses. And so we're going to look at these two themes as a way to introduce the entirety of the book to us. Uh, we find, some folks have described looking at this book of, uh, looking at uh, J.B. Phillips and, and describing Galatians, he, he talks about Galatians uh, chapter 3, verse 1. And, and uh, if you look there, it has this interesting thing, O foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you. He says that it's kind of Paul's way of saying, my dear idiots. Um, and, you know, it's just kind of right there um, in front of us, uh, what, what he's calling us uh, to believe in the gospel. So um, let's look at verse 1. Galatians chapter 1, and we'll read through verse 5. And so, in honor of this being the word of God, let's stand as we read this. Galatians 1, 1 through 5. Paul, an apostle, not from men, nor through men, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father, who raised him from the dead. And all the brothers who are with me, to the churches of Galatia, grace to you, and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself to our, for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. You may be seated. The first theme that's addressed is the authority of Paul concerning the gospel. 
And notice how it starts off right from the very beginning. He says, let me tell you who I am. I'm Paul. I'm an apostle. And that was in question in Galatia. And I'm an apostle, not of man's doing, but of God's doing. That's what verse 1 is telling us. In fact, you'll see this throughout this chapter 1, this emphasis of who he is, that he indeed is an apostle. Now, apostle had a general terminology. It literally means one who is sent out. Okay, and so there's a general idea of, of one who's sent out. You see this in Philippians 2, verses, uh, verse 25, when Paul calls Ephroditus, your apostle and minister for my need. In other words, he is the one who was sent out from this church to minister to Paul. You see this general sense in 2 Corinthians 8, 23, where the men who were appointed by the church of Macedonia to help Paul take money to the poor and are called the apostles of the church. The ones sent out, they're messenger boys, if you will. That's the general understanding. But in the New Testament, it takes on a very specific, particular meaning in which Paul is tapping in into here. Uh, it goes back to the disciples of Jesus Christ, the, the, uh, not just all the disciples, but specifically the 12 disciples who gained the name Apostle, save Judas, who kills himself. Uh, and the idea is that uh, the qualification of being an Apostle of Jesus Christ is that they witnessed the life and times and miracles of Jesus Christ. Uh, in fact, um, when Peter and the disciples are trying to replace Judas, that was one of the criteria that they had been with Jesus from the beginning. And so that was one of the criteria, that they had this encounter with Jesus, then obviously that he was sent out by Jesus to do this work of sharing the gospel. And so uh, in that strict sense, there are no apostles today. This was something that, that died out when John, the last apostle, died, that these who had this encounter with, with Jesus uh, when they died, that was the end of this apostolic movement uh, in a strict general or strict sense. Paul is saying, I'm one of those. I'm one of those who not just generally am sent out. I am one of those who are called by God, sent by him. What had happened is he had gone through Lystia Derby and some of these areas that someone soon thereafter came in and was teaching. You know what? Paul, he's not really an apostle uh, there are others, and, and you don't, before you become a believer, you have to become a Jew. You've got to be circumcised. You've got to go through the law, and then you can become a follower of Jesus Christ. And, and this is kind of what they're teaching in that day and age. And, and Paul is, first of all, having to defend himself. Have you ever tried to defend yourself when someone is just making an accusation that you thought no one could accuse you of? I mean, sometimes it kind of blows your mind a little bit. Um, I, when I was in China... Um, just visiting around, and, and uh, we were we thought it strange that some of the Chinese people were talking to me in Chinese. I thought it was obvious that I didn't know Chinese, but it wasn't obvious to them. And so we're trying to figure it out why isn't obvious to them. Uh, and there's a, a minority people group there that have some Arabic uh, uh, traits in them from the Silk Road, uh, who had. Uh, facial hair, and just didn't look like your typical Chinese. I, I didn't have any facial hair at that time, and they thought I was a, one of these Uyghur people. Group. And I thought, well, you know, if that's the case, I'm going to go out. And ever since then, I've had this goatee going on. Uh, that's, that's been the birth of it, all right? It went back to that. And, um, and, and, and so I, I was telling them, you know, I'm American. They didn't believe me. I, didn't ever thought, I never thought I would have to defend my nationality. I thought, no, I really am American. No, you're not. 
had had one college student come up to me and, and said, "Why is it called when you have one people group marry another people group and they have children?" So interracial? Yeah, yeah, interracial. Are you interracial? <laughs> I share that with my parents. They really like that, you know. Um, I said, "No, I, I really am not." Uh, and it's just, I just baffled me that I was trying to defend <laughs> that I was an American. I thought I never would have to do that. I just. You know, but there I was. It, it just kind of puts you in a weird position of having to defend something that you thought is, is common sense. But here Paul is, and he is uh, called by God as an apostle. And people are saying, no, you're not. It's kind of like, what do you want me to do? You know, I am. And, and let me just. And so in Galatians, he's kind of given his his credentials. This is this is a very personal letter that he's writing. And then it's a very emotional letter. There is an intensity found, a passion found in Galatians that you just don't see in some of his other letters. Uh, and he's very passionate in the other letters. But this, this has an extreme passion here. And so he says, look, no, I am apostle. Now, notice how he says it. I'm not from man and I'm not through man. No man has given me this title. I am what I am by the grace of God. And there is no man that has defined who I am today. But notice he says with a strong word, but... Um, he says, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father. Now, I want you to note something. He assigns one preposition through to Jesus the Christ and God the Father. In doing so grammatically, he is equating them as the same. He says, they're the same. I can put one preposition through Jesus Christ and through God the Father. I can link them together. They're equal with one another. That Jesus is God and he is equal with God the Father. And this is, is something that if you're in another context that's not Christian, it's a huge statement to make. Okay, um, To be able to say Jesus is equal with God the Father. And so he says, I am an apostle through Jesus. I'm apostle through God, the Father, who raised him from the dead. And these are interchangeable things. We, we see uh, that Paul relates some of his, his uh, testimony in Acts chapter 26 of, of how God had worked to him. If you know the story, the, simply is Paul, before he was that, was named Saul, named after the king Saul of the tribe of Benjamin, the first king, the tribe of Benjamin, which is where Saul has come from, later called Paul. And so, as he is a zealot for the Jewish uh, tradition, for the law, he is wiping him out, knocking out, killing Christians wherever he comes across. He has made appeal to the authorities, the high priest, and says, can I go to Damascus and let me round up as many believers as possible? And the very first martyr that we have in Stephen, Paul is a part of it, going by the name of Saul. He was a murderer, and he was a religious murderer. You know what we call that today? Sometimes we call that terrorism, don't we? All right? He was a terrorist. Doing so of a religious zeal. And so on his way to Damascus, the Bible tells us in Acts that he is confronted with a blinding light that knocks him out. Knocks him out on the ground and, there's, and the, the people that are with him are just blind as well. They can't see what's going on. They can't hear what's going on. But then a voice comes and speaks to Saul. And it is the voice of Jesus Christ. And, and Saul is asking, who are you, Lord? And he says, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. Do you know that when you persecute believers, you're persecuting Christ? That was, that was what Jesus was saying. And so Jesus said, I'm, I'm this one. He says, I want, I want you to follow me. You can no longer kick against God. He said, it's hard. It's hard when you kick against God. You can't do that anymore. And, and so God saves 
Saul, who changes his name to Paul, which literally means a little one, little one. And he says, I've called you to the Gentiles. I've called you to share the gospel to the Gentiles. And so Paul, as he looks back, he says, you know what? That wasn't a man that did that. That was Jesus Christ. That was God the Father who has sent me out. I have had this encounter with Jesus, born as one out of time, if you will. He says this in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 1. He says, am I not an apostle? Have I not seen Jesus our Lord? And then later on, he says it again in the same book of 1 Corinthians, chapter 15, verse 8 9. Last of all, as to one untimely born, Jesus appeared also to me. For I am least of the apostles, unfit to be called an apostle, for I persecuted the church of God. But he learned that it didn't matter what he thought about himself. All that matters is what God thought about him. And so he starts following the direction of God concerning his life. And so he is under the authority of God. He's under the authority of Christ. And verse 2, he says, And all the brothers who are with me. Um, we don't know exactly where he's at, but he could be in Antioch, which was kind of like the mother church. Um, he could be on his way to Jerusalem to deal with the council about the very issue that this book is about. Um, he could be writing from Jerusalem. We don't know. We just know that Paul is not acting alone when he gives this rebuke, this correction, this instruction. He says, there's, there's others with me. That we are writing this together to you. And he's writing to the churches of Galatia. Now Galatia was a Roman province that uh, stretched really roughly to what we know as modern day Turkey. There's a, a debate as to which Galatia. Is he talking about the southern Galatians or he's talking about the northern Galatians? And I don't know exactly. I'm, I kind of prefer the southern Galatians uh, because that implies an earlier date which this seems to be consistent with the text itself here. Uh, when he's talking to the southern group of folks, the, the Sidon, Antioch, the Iconium, Lystria, Derbia, uh, that, he, that he's talking to. Uh, but, but one thing of note here, he says, to the churches of Galatia. He's referring to a local body of believers, and a group of local body of believers, all right? Uh, most of the times when you see the word church in the New Testament, he's referring to, or the, the Bible is referring to, a group like, like uh, Green Pines, a group like uh, Lystra, Derbia, like Antioch. All right, he's talking to local bodies of believers. Now he comes to verse three, and when he comes to verse three, he switches over to the second theme, not only of this passage but the entirety of the book. All right, first theme, authority of Paul concerning the gospel. The second theme is the uh, sovereignty of God, or the initiative of God, the direction of God concerning the gospel. It is. His work that is being done. And that's why it's the grace of God. So verse 3. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. That is a common greeting that he has in his letters. Grace to you and peace. Talking about God's giving to us what we do not deserve. That's grace. Giving to us what we do not deserve. It is an act of God. And then the peace, the, the idea that we can be complete, that we can be whole because of God's grace. He's not just referring to the Pax Romana, which is uh, the fact that Roman ruled everything and so it was a, a forced peace. He says that there's a greater peace that, that's from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Again, you've got the equating of God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Alright. So it's from Him. What is it that God did? What is the initiative? Well, first of all, verse 4. He gave himself 
for our sins. Now, I want you to, to equate something. He's gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil. Now, notice this next phrase. According to the will of our, of our God and Father. All right? So he gave himself according to the will of God, our Father, and Father, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Okay, So that tells me that when Jesus gave himself, he did it at God's behest. He did it at God's direction. It wasn't just this idea that here's this mean God who's the judge, the Father, and then there's this really nice, sweet Jesus, and he kind of comes in and overpowers and tricks God the Father so that now that we're saved. All right. Sometimes we can get that understanding. As a child, we think, oh, you know, you know Jesus is the sweet one. God's kind of the harsh one. No, they come in together. There's not that division of will. They are one in will because they are one in essence. That, that there is this, this God the Father who at the will of God the Father, Jesus is giving himself uh, for our sins. Why did he die on the cross? Do you realize that when he says that he's giving himself for our sins, he's just called all of us a bunch of sinners. All right, you get that? Sometimes we have this image of churches that this is the folks who come together who don't sin. All right? You ever had that thought? Your neighbors do. And they think, oh, yeah, they're the ones that got it together. I don't go to the church because I know they don't have it together. I've seen them go to the church. And they use that as an argument for not coming to the church because, well, I've seen them. They're supposed to have it together and they don't have it together. Some, I wish someone would tell the world, we don't have it together. That's not why we're here. We're here because we don't have it together. And the grace of God is working to help us understand that we need a Savior. We need help. And we need other people to encourage us. We need someone to uh, help us in the Word of God. We need to be able to help someone to help us to sing. We need a realignment. We need encouragement. We need a community. We need support. That's what a church is. It's not a museum. Of saints. You get that? We're, we're not on, we're not on display to see how good and beautiful we are. Look, I wish you could be like us. Meanwhile, I guess you just gotta look up to us and we're gonna look down at you. That's not the angle. That's not the direction. That's not love. That's just spiritual grace going sour. It is to say, hey, you know what? I need the Savior not just in 1989 when I prayed to follow Jesus Christ, but I need the Savior today as much as I did in 1989. And in fact, the matter is, I realize I need it more than I do back then. And so when I'm talking with neighbors and friends is to be able to say, yeah, I go to church because I need it. I, I need it. I need the encouragement. I need a Savior. He gave Himself for our sins. We are sinners. And until someone can get the idea that they need a Savior, then the grace of God is lost to them. They don't get it. So you start praying for people that they understand their need. Understand their need. And here's the fact of the matter is, is no one's volunteering to take care of their sin. When the Bible says there's no other name under heaven whereby men may be saved, it's because there's no other name that's wanting to save you. There is no other one who is saying, I will pay the penalty of your sin. Jesus is it. He is exclusive by the process of elimination. There's no one else that is able to save you. There's no one who is volunteering to save you. And so he does it for our sins. But notice in verse 4, he keeps on, who gave himself for our sins to what? 
to deliver us from the present evil age. There is the idea that Jesus died on the cross not just, not just to pay for the penalty of our sin. It is that, and it is a blessed hope to know that when I die, there is not the penalty of sin. There is no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. Hallelujah, that is wonderful. What a Savior we have in that idea, that truth, that hope. But it's not the only hope we have. That's a good one. But it's not the only hope. It is the hope that not only did Jesus remove us from the penalty of sin, but he died on the cross to defeat the power of sin today. And what gets me is when I see folks who claim to be believers and having all their hope and that when they die, they'll go to be with God in heaven, but they could really care less about living for the Lord and, and living in a way where they are separate from this present age. And I'm thinking, you can't divorce that. You can't separate that. Then if there's a Savior, you want to be removed from the penalty of sin, then you're going to pray that God remove us from the power of sin. Today, there is a desire, and you pray, God, help me to be holy. Help me to be like you. Help me to walk with you. And that is the change that God is doing in our heart and life. And just the fact that matters, when Jesus died on the cross, it wasn't just to remove the penalty of the sin, but according to this text, he did it to deliver us from the present evil age. And for us to walk around and say, Jesus, thank you for saving my sin. Let me do what I want to do now is just the height of putting the grace of God to vain use. That's not what he's called us to do. He gave himself for our sins. To deliver us from the present evil age. Jesus said it in this way in John 17, verse 15. He's getting ready to go. This is his, his prayer with his disciples. Just in a few hours, he'll be put on the cross. He says to the disciples there in the room and also to the disciples who are to come, us, in the future. He says, I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but you keep them from the evil one. When they follow Jesus Christ and they surrender Him and seek forgiveness of God, I do not ask that you instantly remove Him from heaven. I do not ask that you uh, take away uh, the, the presence of evil in their life. I do not ask that you make them divorced or separate or, or shielded from the oppression and injustice of this life. I do not ask that they are exempt from that point on from sin and death and disease. I do not ask for these things, but I do ask that you keep them from the evil one. That we are those who go through the injustice, the oppression, the disease, the sickness of this world, but the evil doesn't rot us on the inside. It doesn't rot us on the inside. But we think different. We look at life different. We have a perspective that's wholly different from this age around us. Colossians 1.13 says, God has delivered us from the dominion of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of His beloved Son. Deliverance means a change of heart so that we love a new age. We get our kicks in a newer and higher way than this age can offer. Romans 12, verse 2, Do not be conformed to this age, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. It means freedom to think differently. Freedom to think differently than how the system of belief is around us. I um this past week we um went to Monkey Joe's. 
Uh, we had some gift cards to go to Monkey Joe's. If you don't know what that is, it's because you don't have kids. It's, uh, it's uh, a big place where you have all kinds of inflatable um, games, and you go there, just let the kids get worn out, and they love it, and jump around, and um, just pretty much it. They serve food as a kind of a side thought. Um, so we were there, and didn't realize it, but um, we were there at the same time they had the uh, Raleigh coming out day at Monkey Joe's uh, with parents and their kids. Um, uh, you know, I was starting to suspect something. Uh, I was looking around, looking at the various women around me, and there's a characteristic there. There's a there's a cultural involved with homosexuals of how they live. There's a conformity in how they talk and how they act that you could say there's a cultural, there's a, there's a, a trend. I was seeing this around me. I was just th- talking to Julius, like, how is it that we have a culture that births that culture? How does, how does that happen? Well, this culture is birthed from the American society as we know it. Um, I don't know all the answers to that. I've got some ideas. Um, but I, one of the things that, that struck me, even though I didn't see the banners, nor the badges, nor everyone else, the first thing that struck me as I came in was this table uh, where they had uh, shirts and bumper stickers um, that you could pick up or for sale. I don't, I don't know. But it's one I've seen often. It kind of bugs me. Irritates me a little bit. It, it's, it's the one, and I'll explain why. It's the one that says coexist. Um, and it sounds great. You know, you've got the word coexist made out of a, a cross, one made out of the, the, the Muslim crescent, uh, one out of the, the Jewish star. The idea is let's just have all the major religions that divide us um, somehow just capture the idea of tolerance first and let the tolerance be the governing rule. So that the end result is that people can get along and not kill one another. And that's the message. And it, it sounds sweet. It sounds nice. Politically correct. And, we, and I thought, well, if we could just do that, then we won't have terrorism. We don't have a lot of these problems if we could just let these religions be governed by this idea of tolerance. It's interesting because this idea flows out of the concept of love love one another. Love love one another. And we think, well, yeah, that's a Christian idea. It's the second commandment. We should love one another. And they have taken that second command and forgotten about the first one where we love God with our heart, soul, and mind. And that is the source, the foundation for the idea of loving one another. And then essentially you're saying it doesn't matter what your source is. Just love one another. The reason I... There's a lot of reasons I don't like it. But one reason I don't like that is they have no idea how offensive they are to Jews, to Muslims, to believers. It just lets me know they have half-baked understanding of all three of those religions. And in their idea to be tolerant, they have offended most of the world. That's just one reason. Um, Because if you understand Islam, if you understand Judaism, if you understand Christianity, the teachings therein, 
it's kind of an all or nothing thing. Either you believe that this is true or you don't. And if you don't accept that, or you don't agree with that, then you're saying, well, fine, it's, it's better that you don't believe it than to compromise it. But when I look at what Christianity is teaching, when I look at what Christ is and who he is, when he says, I'm the way, the truth, and the life, no man comes to the Father but through me, when I understand the idea that Jesus is the only one volunteering to take care of my sins, that Muhammad is not providing a way to pay for the penalty of my sin, that is a shame-based society and it's filled with shame and there's no answer for their shame other than just do better. And that it, you see this in the same way in the Judaism, you see this in, in various ways in the Buddhism and Hinduism, and that they've got these answers of, of saying, well, this is how you get one with God, but they don't address what about the mistakes in my life? What about the pride in my heart? What about the sin in my life? And they said, well, just take your pride and transfer it to religious and be really religious and be really prideful in your religion and then maybe God can, can embrace you in that way. Let me just tell you, that is the system of this world. That is the age that we live in. It's, it's just to take pride and transfer in something, whether it's in your job and your money or in Christianity or Baptist or being or Catholic or being Mormon or being a uh, Hindu or being a Muslim is just pride in a different color. And the problem is that this world wasn't made for you. It's made around God. We live in a world for God. Where ultimate glory will be given to God. Jesus has come to deliver us from this present evil age. To think differently. Have a different perspective on life. Have different values. That we get our kicks out of something wholly different that this world cannot present to us. And the power of the cross. I think about Romans 1.16. For I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Where is the power to salvation to everyone who believes? To say that I, I can be trapped in this way of thinking. I can, I can be trapped and addicted to various things that creation gives to me, that God has given to me through creation. And I can be uh, put my hopes and dreams on these things and find myself in a cycle of sin and cycle of death. But God, through Jesus Christ, is greater than that. And he has the resources to get me out of that. It's like Jesus has declared me clean from leprosy. Something I couldn't save myself from. And he said, be clean. And I'm going back to my old drawers and getting the leprous pus filled garments and putting them back on again. Say, you know, I kind of felt good. Let me put that back on. The power of the gospel, the initiative of God according to the will of God is to deliver us from the present evil age, to be transformed by the renewing of our mind according to the will of our God and Father. Verse 5. What's the end result? To whom be glory forever and ever. I just want you to understand that the the grace of verse 3 The peace of verse 3. Verse 4, the initiative of God according to the will of God. Again, verse 4, the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. Verse 4, the regenerating power of the Holy Spirit to deliver us from the present evil age. All this is working not so that we can look back, sit back and say, man, look how good I am. Look how sweet I am. Now, I once was a bitter, cranky dude and now God's changing me into a beautiful, tender fellow. 
To say that I used to be greedy and now I'm generous. To say that I used to be addicted to all these things and now I'm free of all these things. To say that I was just uh, grumpy and now I'm loving. And, and to, to sit back on that and think, oh, praise God. You know, I once were all these things and now I'm this. That's a good step, but you're, stop, you're stopping short. You're stopping short. There's a more important step. That all these changes are being produced for an end goal. It tells us right here in verse 5. To whom be glory forever and ever. Why is the grace of God given? It is given so that you will glorify God. I think it's interesting that the most popular, one of the most popular songs, I guess of all time, I don't know the statistics on this, but I think of all time, is Amazing Grace. I mean, we love that song. The church... I mean, we'll sing that in church, and we'll love it, we know the words. I mean, we'll have a national tragedy, and we'll sing Amazing Grace. We'll have funerals, and we'll sing Amazing Grace, and we'll have all kinds of varieties of singing Amazing Grace. And, and have we ever stopped to think, why is God giving the Amazing Grace? Why is He doing that? It, it's not so that we can sit in awe and wonderment. God, you must really love us. And he does really love us, but it's not just to make a lot of stuff, a lot of noise about who we are, but it's to make a lot of noise about who God is. The amazing grace of God so that we might glorify God. Paul is saying it from the very beginning is the initiative of God concerning the gospel. He is the one that is giving the grace. He is the one that's giving the peace. It is according to the will of God that he's giving his son. It is according to the will of God that he's delivering from the present age. And he's doing these things, verse 5, to whom be glory forever and ever. So when it's all said and done, and time has done its deal, and sin has finished its course, and the disease has racked the last body, and the person has breathed their last death, and death itself has been eliminated by God the Father, that the Bible gives us a little glimpse of what that looks like, and the main refrain throughout it all is to Jesus Christ, the Lamb who was slain for our sins, to Him all glory goes, to Him all power, to Him all strength goes. And that is what this world was made for. That is the tuning fork. That is the tuning fork of everything we do until we can get our mind are thinking tuned to the tuning fork of eternity, then everything's going to be off kilter as we live our life. Our marriage, our hobby, our job, our, uh, uh, our entertainment is all going to be off kilter until we're tuned to that end note. And that's why Paul is saying from the very beginning, it's to the glory of God. And it's by the grace of God, according to the will of God, by whom he has made me an apostle Let me tell you once again, it's not by your works. It's not by your works. There's no boasting going to be going on in your part. And if there's any boasting that's going to be done, it's going to be boasting in Jesus Christ, through whom I've been crucified to this world. It's no longer I who lives, but Christ lives in me. By the faith of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Let's pray.